0: book in the Bible. So you don't want to miss it. I think you'll be blessed. But we got a Bible study uh, this morning as we continue Matthew chapter 25. We're going to finish this uh, section called the Olivet Discourse. So if you'll turn there. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus is talking about the signs of his coming in the end of the age that started in chapter 24. Keep in mind that he is speaking to his disciples He's on the Mount of Olives. And as we conclude here, we'll begin in verse 31. He's going to be speaking of the judgment of the nations. Father, I pray that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. And Lord, these things are real. And we know that the coming of your son um, is near, it's nigh. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know that we are to be watching. And Lord, I pray that our hearts once again would be stirred because there is a judgment that's going to come. And, Lord, we in Christ have such a wonderful future ahead for us. And, Lord, we want to have our hearts stirred because um, there is the sheep and the goats. And uh, we want to be used in the day in which we're in to be able to be uh, a vessel of truth and a voice of truth to others and of the gospel. And, Lord, uh, take your word and work it in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we open up the chapter, chapter 25, Jesus was talking to his disciples. He gave a parable, the parable of the wise and foolish uh, maidens, as he's emphasizing them to be ready, and for us as well, at his coming. Five had oil for their lamps, so when the bridegroom came, they followed him to the wedding feast. The others they had no oil, and they missed out, and the door was shut, and they could not enter into the wedding feast because they did not know the bridegroom. Jesus would then, in that parables, we saw that watch. Therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We know in chapter twenty-four it was a theme that he would uh, continually emphasize that know that, during, that the times of the Son of Man is going to be like the days of Noah. He would say the days of Lot in Luke's gospel, that I come at a time that you do not expect. So as Jesus has been emphasizing this, we also know that Jesus, as we were in Matthew last time in verses 14 through 30, That he gave another parable. And he talks about responsible stewardship. That is, being good stewards of the gifts and abilities and talents and opportunities that are given to us to invest in the kingdom of God. Because not only are we to be wise, watching, be sober, be vigilant, those exhortations are given to us not only in the Olivet discourse. But throughout the New Testament, by the authors of the New Testament books that tell us the coming of the Lord is at hand. That you be watchful, you be sober, you be vigilant. And because he does come in a time that we least expect. But also that we are to be ones that are to be faithful servants unto the Lord. We are to be working and doing what he's called us to do. He desires to give us eternal rewards for what we do for him and for the kingdom. And as we finish this section of Matthew, again called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus now talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats, or what we know as the judgment of the nations when he returns to set up his kingdom here on the earth. Now David uh, would write in Psalm 110, that Messianic psalm, Speaking of Messiah, that he shall judge among the nations, he shall break in pieces the heads of many nations. We know also that Psalm 2, that Messianic Psalm, would speak that he's going to come and rule the nations with a rod of iron. And as we go through not only the Psalms, but the Old Testament prophets that would speak uh, very clearly of Messiah coming and setting up his kingdom and then judging the nations. And the Jews in Jesus' day, the, the nation of Israel... They were looking for the Messiah to come and establish the kingdom of God. And as we discussed, they were looking to be free from the Romans who had them in occupation, suppressing them. And, and in submission to Rome was, was Israel's very difficult days. And that's why when Jesus rode into Jerusalem earlier in this week, we're in Passover week, that as he rode into Jerusalem, lowly riding on a, the back of a donkey, that the people were waving the palm branches. It was a symbol of political freedom and and being free from Rome. They expected that heaven would open up and angels would descend and that he would judge the Romans and usher in the kingdom at that time. And as they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Could this be the son of David that's going to free us from the Roman occupation, set up the kingdom of God? But as time has gone on now, And as the week is, Passover week continues, that they see that it's not going to happen. Not at least in his first coming. What he's talking about is you need to die to self, pick up your cross and follow after me. And it's going to be a short time from this teaching here that Jesus will hear the voices that will be calling out to him, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. And as we pick up this last portion of the Olivet Discourse, uh, we are going to see that Jesus is telling of a time when he will come and judge the nations and he will establish the kingdom of God. Verse 31, as we read of the chapter, When a son of man comes, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory it would be different than what we read in chapter 21. Jesus riding from the top of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. He, he didn't come as the conquering king. He came as the suffering savior. And when he comes again, as we have talked about in this prophetic section of Matthew, he will come on the clouds of heaven, as we read in chapter 24. Every eye will see him. He's going to come with great power and glory. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, is what Jesus said. We read about the second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19, that when he comes, he's going to come with the armies of heaven. We are told, that's you and I. And to keep in mind that when we talk about the return of the Lord, there is the rapture of the church, that he will come for his church. And then the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period, where he's going to come back physically, literally touch down on the Mount of Olives, the same mountain that he's given this teaching from. And the armies of heaven are going to come with him. That's you and me. So we have a glorious future ahead for us. And as we continue here in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So when Jesus returns to the earth in glory... He's going to establish his kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years. So that's called the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. Millennium means a thousand. Now, I do want to say this that there is a growing trend in the church, even in evangelical churches, that those who are all millennials, that all means no millennium. There's going to be no millennium reign. And we know that as we go through the scriptures, not only in Revelation chapter 20, But as you go through the Old Testament, as you go through Isaiah, and you go through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophets and the minor prophets, you have many verses, whole chapters that speak about when the Lord's going to come back and establish his kingdom. Again, as I was telling you last week that when I was in Peru teaching the book of Isaiah, we did it in a very short time, and it was just verse after verse after verse, of speaking of the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 2, it says that these things will come to pass. It will happen. Jesus said, every dot and tittle will be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So don't let anybody... Tell you that the millennium reign is not going to happen. It is going to happen. He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. We're going to rule and reign with him. But as we talk about this judgment that is taking place here, the separation of the sheep and the goats, I want us to make sure that we understand the different judgments that are spoken of in the scripture, because it can get a little bit confusing or we can get it kind of mixed up. The first thing that I want you to be established in, and I think that most of you are, but sometimes a Christian will come to me and they will say that I think God's going to judge me or God is judging me. Now, as a believer, remember that Jesus took the punishment and the judgment for our sins, for your sins, when he died on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Are you established in that? Now, the Lord will chasten you. He'll discipline us because we are his children. So if we're in sin, if we are going down a road or a direction he doesn't want us to go or doing something he doesn't want us to do. Hebrew tells us that he does discipline us, he chastens us, Because he motivated by love for us. And we are his children. He's a loving father. And any of us that are parents, we understand that, don't we? As we discipline our own children. Because we want them to learn what is right. We want them to grow up to be responsible adults. We want them to do well in this life. So we discipline our children. That's a big part of raising our children. And we do it because we love them. So keep in mind that Jesus took the judgment for you On that cross when he died and shed his blood for you. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. We know the scripture tells us that Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us. And because of that, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I love that verse, that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I like to emphasize that word now. There is now no condemnation. That means this morning to you who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He took the judgment for you and for me. So with that said, we're not going to be judged for our sins. And those of us who by faith have re- been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we've asked them into our hearts, we have salvation, forgiveness of sin, that he took the judgment and the wrath that we deserve upon himself on Calvary, please be established in that. Second of all, with that said, that it tells us, as Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, many of you, you know it, we talked a bit about it as we looked at the parable of the talents, Paul writes that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And a lot of Christians don't understand that. They they read that as well as what uh, we read in Romans chapter 14, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand as believers at the Bema reward seat of Christ where we're going to receive rewards for what we have done for Christ in this life. And we are not talking about salvation. We're not talking about being judged for our sins. Again, that's already been taken care of by Jesus. But as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, they knew exactly what he was writing about, the Bema Reward Seat of Jesus Christ, like the Olympic Games, like the Isthmus Games that would be in Corinth. The, The winners of those events would stand on the Bema Reward Seat, and they would receive Rewards and uh, whatever they gave out for their events that they won. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. In other words, our works, what we do in this lifetime, are like in the wood, hay, and stubble or precious metals. And as the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you might want to read it as, as you go home or during this week and you're thinking about these things. That He goes on to say that if anyone's work, which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So the wood, hay, and stubble of our lives are going to burn up. And then that which we did for Christ, listen, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul not only talking about a destination, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but a motivation as well, that we're going to stand at the bema reward seat of Jesus Christ to receive rewards, what we have done for him in the body, whether good or bad, tested by fire. All, all the wrong motives, all the selfishness, all that, whatever the wood, Woodhane double is, it will burn up. And then those things that we did for Christ, and Paul writes in that chapter, listen, that it's the love of Christ that compels me. Our love for Jesus Christ. It's the love of Christ that motivates me. Because, Lord, you've saved me. You've forgiven me. And you've put your love in me. And I love you and I want to be used of you, whatever it is that you have for me. Precious people, listen. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with love and the opportunities and gifts and talents and resources that have been given to you. And it just amazes me his incredible grace. He saved us, he's called us to minister. He does the work in us. He empowers us. He gifts us. He guides us. He ministers through us. And then he rewards us. I find that to be absolutely amazing. So don't miss out in hearing those words. And I know that you desire to hear them. I desire to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. As we serve him, as we love him, as we're reaching out in the opportunities given to us to be a good steward of of being faithful to him. Thirdly, there is the great white throne judgment. After the millennium reign of Christ, after the heavens and earth, as we know, will melt away, we know that Peter, in his second epistle, chapter 2, he says that heaven and earth are going to go up in a fervent heat that is going to dissolve. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of another judgment, the great white throne judgment, At the end of the millennium reign, when heaven and earth knows no place found for them. Let me read it to you in verses 11 through 13. As John writes, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose the face of the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no... Uh, found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according, listen, to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works." So this is a different time than what's spoken here. This is the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ and the great white throne judgment, those who have rejected Jesus, and since they have not received forgiveness of sin, that they will be judged according to their works. And what is meant by that, they did not look to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And, of course, when he was on that cross, he cried out, It is finished. He did the work. He paid the price for sinful humanity, for my sins, and he rose from the grave. And there are people that we know. I'm sure every single person that is here, you have family members, you have friends, you have neighbors, coworkers, whoever it might be, that they think that they're going to be able to stand before God in their own righteousness and works and efforts and merit and deserve and earn heaven. God's approval. And we know the truth of the scripture is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death. That our righteousness, as the prophet Isaiah declares, is as filthy rags before the Lord. We need to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And every other religion of the world says that salvation and eternal life is based on your works. This is what you have to do to earn salvation or favor with God or to to reach heaven. Whatever the case may be, when true biblical Christianity says that our salvation is not based on what we do, it is based on what he did on the cross of Calvary. So there is a great white throne judgment that those who have rejected the work of Jesus Christ on the cross will be judged according to their works, and then they will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Now here, back to our text in Matthew chapter 25, there is another judgment, which is separate and distinct from all other judgments. This judgment will take place after the end of the tribulation period, that seven-year period right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. When you read the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 4, it speaks of the sin offering. If the priest sins, here is your sacrifice. If somebody from a congregation, an individual sins, here is your sacrifice. Then in verses 13 and 14 of the chapter, it speaks of if the whole congregation sins or the nation, here is your sacrifice. We know from Leviticus chapter 16, on the day of atonement, there was the blood that was sprinkled by the high priest on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation. Now, as we've gone through Isaiah, again, Jeremiah, and other books, there are proclamations that are against nations. Of course, the Lord spoke of judgment that he would bring to the house of Israel by the Assyrians, the house of Judah by the Babylonians. But also we see proclamations that were given against Babylon and Assyria and Philistia and Ammon and Edom and, and um, Moab and, and those nations Around Jerusalem, Ethiopia, Egypt—all those things—and the reason that I'm bringing this up because it's important, Christian, you and I, that we continue to pray for our own nation. There is that national accountability that is before God. He's the one that establishes nations, and we see that in the Scripture that He will even, as we read uh, during the tribulation period, nations are involved in in the end time scenario. And there is accountability before God. And you and I, we need to be praying for our nation. Because I think that a lot of you, if not most of you or, or all of you, would agree that we are headed spiritually in the wrong direction. That is getting darker in our nation. We're getting further away from the Lord, that we're calling evil good and good evil, that we're accepting every kind of sinful activity and lifestyle and and telling everyone to celebrate all these things. And there's an affront on, you know, the the truth of God's word and how we are to live. And we know that as we feel it, you feel it in the schools, you feel it in the workplace. How many people, even this morning, came out and said, it's so hard for me to be a teacher. It's so hard to me to be in the workplace uh, because of uh, how spiritually dark it is getting in our culture and in our nation. And the answer for our nation is a spiritual awakening that I pray takes place. A return to Jesus Christ. So we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for our country. But as we look at this, at the end of the tribulation period, when the nations of the world, according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3, have gathered against Jerusalem in the valley of Jezreel, or the valley of Megiddo, in the last world war, the battle of Armageddon, Jesus will come back, as we've discussed at that time. There will be a couple things that will take place. One of the things is the restoration of Israel. It is the one nation that there's a spiritual restoration that will take place. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, in that day, all of Israel will be saved. You remember that when Jesus, after his, trium- his triumphal entry, we call it the triumphal entry, there on Palm Sunday. But he wept over Jerusalem. He said that you will not see me again in until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's speaking of that time when their eyes will be opened up and they will recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. Zechariah speaks of it as they will mourn for him, as they see the one who's been pierced. And their eyes will be opened up where all of Israel will be saved, Paul writes in Romans chapter 11. So that will take place. A national restoration. And second of all, then the Gentiles will be gathered or the nations will be gathered. And the chief shepherd will divide them, them, dividing the sheep from the goats. So that word nations here can be translated Gentiles. And it's not just that we're going to be judged in groups of people. Individually, those people are going to be judged. Because you might be thinking, well, what if I end up in a nation that's kind of evil and wicked and and they're a believer? Individuals are going to be judged as he'll separate the sheep from the goats. In verse 33, he says that he will do that. The sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So whenever someone is placed on the right hand, we know that it's an expression, it's a place of honor. It is Jesus that sits at the right hand of the Father. We say that that person is my right-hand man, my right-hand woman, my right-hand person, whatever it might be. It's a place of honor. It's a place of importance. Well, he's going to place those who are believers at the end of the tribulation period at his right hand, those who are Gentiles, non-Jews, and those who have survived the tribulation period. Now, those who have rejected Christ will be the goats on the left. So there's a definite division at this point as he separates the people. This is not we're all going to end up in bliss together. That is the lie of the world, of the enemy, and it's the false doctrine of religion. Now there is an interesting verse in the book of Daniel, chapter 12. Daniel, in those chapters, he's seen all kinds of visions concerning the last days, uh, concerning the nation of Israel what they were go through, the Antichrist, the, the battle of Armageddon, all these things. It overwhelmed him so much that he even fainted. He, he couldn't eat. And Daniel receiving those visions, that powerful prophetic things concerning the last days, at the end of the book, Daniel asks, when shall be the end of these things? And Daniel is told in chapter 12, verse 11, that from the time of the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Now, we know, as you've been with us in our study, going through the Olivet Discourse, that Jesus spoke when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet. We know that that takes place in the middle of the tribulation period where the Antichrist proclaims himself as God to be worshipped as God, in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. At that time, that he will demand the world to turn to him, take the mark of the beast, and those who reject him, he's going to persecute. He's going to persecute the Jews very heavily. They will flee to the rock city of Petra, which is in Jordan, a remnant of them, and then he will go after the tribulation saints because keep in mind, as we discuss, that people are going to come to the Lord out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nations, Revelation chapter 7, that are going to come to Christ during that time. So the Antichrist is going to persecute them, make war with the saints, Revelation chapter 13. So that's what taken place during that time. So during that time of the middle of the tribulation, when the sacrifices are ceased they're in the temple, there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. 1,290 days at the consummation of the end of things. Now, here's what's interesting, is that the tribulation period is the most documented period of time in the Bible, and it's divided up in the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years, and it's usually in terms of 42 months, three and a half years, uh, time times and a half times, that's the King James, that's three and a half years, or 1,260 days. So as you read that, scholars are saying, why 1,290 days? There's an extra 30 days that are added there. And Daniel was also told that blessed is he who comes to 1,335 days. So not only is there an extra 30 days given there, there's an extra 45, so an extra 75 days. So what is that all about? Well, most scholars believe that what he's speaking about when he comes back, that there's going to be during that time the restoration of Israel, the destruction of the tribulation temple. There's going to be the judgment of the nations, and that perhaps that extra forty-five days is where the millennial temple that we read about in Ezekiel chapter forty through forty-eight is going to be built during that time. Okay, did you get all that? <laughs> the main thing to remember is Jesus is going to come back and that we're going to come back with him and then there's going to be that separation of the sheep and the goats. And here Jesus, as he's judging the nations or the Gentiles, individuals that survived the tribulation period. And as those who were believers are going to, as we read in verse 34, that then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And come to you. In verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them. Assuredly I say to you. Inasmuch as you did it. To one of the least of these my brethren. You did it to me. So Jesus saying to the sheep. Inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. You've reached out to those who are in need. Hurting those that are hungry. You clothed them. You fed them. you, You visited them. To the least of my brethren. As you did that. You did it unto me. So you will inherit the the kingdom before the world ever was. Notice in verse 34 there. Interesting how the scriptures refer to God's plan for our lives having existed from the foundations of the world. Chosen in him, Paul would say, from the foundations of the world. And then in verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me you curse into, notice here, and you might mark it everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a popular trend again in the church today. Those who read books like Rob Bell, and there is no hell, or hell isn't forever, or the doctrine of annihilation. Here he says everlasting fire. It's everlasting. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you, hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, as Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And there, these will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So the sheep on his right hand will enter the kingdom that was prepared for them, the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. The goats are separated, and verse 46 tells us, will go away into everlasting punishment. They've rejected Christ, rebelled against Christ, did not come to Christ for forgiveness of sin. What do we take away from this today? Quickly, as we wrap it up, number one. Some have taken this text to mean that if you clothe and help and feed people, that's what brings salvation. Is quoted all the time in that way by those who bring a social gospel or those who are embracing progressive theology, live any way that you want, believe anything that you want to. Let's all just accept one another and receive one another, and you are to love your neighbor. You're to, to help others. Jesus said, if you feed me, you clothe me, you visited me, then, then you're saved. That's what they say, and we know that's not the gospel. There's only one gospel. That we need to make the gospel clear. Here, Jesus is talking about the person whose life has been saved because they have come to him, believed in him, received him as Lord and Savior. And as the Holy Spirit has come into that person, come into your heart, my heart, we've been changed. Regeneration has taken place. And servanthood is a part of the life of a believer. Before I got saved, I didn't care about people. I didn't care about helping people, helping people I didn't know. But as the Lord has saved me and He's put His love in me, and He's still working all of this in this whole process of sanctification, that I can care about people. I want to serve Him. I want to please Him with my life. So servanthood is a part of the life of a believer. And Jesus said, "The sheep that will be on uh, the, are righteous will enter into eternal life." Of course, Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. There's a relationship, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Second of all, Jesus here says to the sheep, you did serve those who are the least of my brethren. Now, who is he talking about? And I think, again, that most commentators specifically believe that he's talking about those Jews who will go through the tribulation period, go through the fire as the Antichrist will go after them. And a Gentile helping them means they have rejected the Antichrist, endangered persecution themselves, but whoever has helped the least of my brethren. And here's the thing there's always a connection uh, with as we are serving others, or if we're persecuting others. You see, you remember that Saul. When he was on his way to Damascus, he's persecuting Christians. Saul, uh, uh, later on known as Paul the Apostle, and he meets the Lord, and the Lord knocks him down. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not just Christians. Why are you throwing them in prison? You're persecuting me. And when you and I are serving others, receiving others, whether you're ministering to them, showing compassion, Whatever it might be, you are in a sense you are serving Christ, and those who come against those who are His, as they come down on you, as they persecute you, in whatever degree that might mean that they are persecuting Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So there is a link: identifying with Christ as we serve others, our brethren. Thirdly, I think that it, this is describing to us very practical servanthood: it is having compassion. Serving in very practical ways. You see, it's never to be about what can I get from it, how can I make a name for myself, what's in it for me, how popular can I be. It's about serving others, the love of Jesus Christ, the compassion of Jesus Christ, helping others, that we care for them, that we desire to love them and reach out to them. John Wesley said this, I like it, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. I like that. God has touched some of you, because I've talked to you in the last couple of weeks, in the last few days. And God is stirring your heart about ministering to others, reaching out to others. So the question is, what are you going to do with that? And I pray that as you continue to look to the Lord, that he guides you and directs you. Because all of us have something that the Lord desires for us to do. And it's different. For some of you, you might be thinking right now, I'm just you know, chasing after these kids and changing diapers and wiping runny noses. That honors the Lord. Or you might be that I have elderly parents that I need to take care of or I'm working to provide for my family. But everything that you do in every area of your life, you're doing it as unto the Lord and pleasing Him. And as He puts something on your heart, then you move out in it, in faith, desiring to be obedient to Him, desiring to please Him with your life. Fourthly, lastly, quickly, the things that we have read over the last several weeks in chapters 24 and 25, this is real. This is real. It's not fiction, but the Lord is coming, and life is short. And we are in very unique times. So I want to remind us once again, not only to be watching, to be waiting, to be discerning and sober and be faithful servants. Listen, keep your focus on the Lord. Don't be focused on the world, and you know we are to keep our focus on Him. Don't get weighed down by the world. Don't get so enamored with the world. We're in this life, we got jobs, we got businesses, we got things that we enjoy doing, but please the Lord with your life and keep your eyes on Him. And all of us should be saying in our hearts that the day of slumber is over. And I don't want to just cruise through Christianity. But as we talked about last week, that man that was in the synagogue, that the Lord might be saying to you, I want you to step forward, I want you to stand up. Because he has something for all of us. We are rushing towards eternity. And the Lord desires for you to be used in the days in which we are in. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this lesson. We thank you for, Lord, just your grace, your love for us, and your provision for us. And as we get ready to come to the communion table, the communion table is for the believer. It's not if you belong to the church. If you're a believer, it's remembering what he has done for you. And and the bread, as we hold it, that his body was broken for us. The cup symbolizing his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. But I do want to pray if there's anyone listening, whether you're online, whether you're here in this place, that you've never come to Christ, that the gospel is this. That Jesus Christ came and died for you, a sinner. And the Bible says to repent and turn towards God through Jesus Christ. Call out to him. The invitation is to come. The invitation is given for you to receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And ask him into your heart as Lord and Savior. To forsake this world and come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation because tomorrow's unpromised to any of us. Will you do that? Where you are sincerely just praying, Jesus, I believe you came and died for me, a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying for me and taking the penalty for my sins. And you rose from the grave and you're alive. So I ask not only for forgiveness, but for you to be my personal Lord and Savior. And I do want to please you with my life. Lord, I thank you for this new beginning. And I pray that I would, Lord, you would help me to serve you, to learn of you, to please you with my life. In Jesus' name. And for all of us, as we take a communion, that we would just just be thankful and, and have an attitude of worship towards him. In Jesus' name. Amen.